So um, we are drawing near to the conclusion of our series in the Beatitudes. And um, yeah, the Lord has been um, very gracious in the way in which he's just been using it um, in our lives, just making our way um, one step at a time through each Beatitude. This is the seventh of eight. And so next week is the last of the Beatitudes, and then we'll have a roundup week um, where we'll just consider the, a few things as a whole. And um, for those who've not been following the series, you can find it on um, the iTunes podcast for Ecclesia on, or on sermon.net. And um, fundamentally, as we're looking at the Beatitudes, it's important that we hold in mind as we're going through that. These are not commands, but characteristics displayed by those who have received Christ. So they're not commands. It is not by following these commands that we're made right with God. Um, but it's actually as a result of being made right with God, having come to repentance and faith in Christ, our hearts are so shaped that they begin to reflect these qualities and characteristics. And so... Um, it's a helpful means by which we're able to kind of consider where we're at in our relationship with the Lord and how healthy we are in terms of relationship with God. Um, our vision is to be a healthy church, and that is healthy in terms of relationship, having healthy relationship with God and healthy relationship with others. Um, vertical, horizontal, and we see this consistently through the scriptures that as we focus on our vertical relationship with God and that being properly aligned, our horizontal relationship then gets um, resolved of the many issues that we face with them. And so these Beatitudes become a, somewhat of a quote-unquote performance indicator, if you like such terms at work. Um, and it, it kind of becomes a, an, an illustration as to where we're at and maybe those areas that we need to give attention to in our hearts and lives, um, those areas that we need to surrender to the Lord, we need to be praying for His grace, we need to be applying ourselves attentively to um, be obedient in certain things. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 to 12. Um, it's been a couple of weeks. Let's stand as we read God's Word together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Um, I put it on the screen so maybe we can read aloud together. <clears throat> so, Matthew chapter 5 from verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is not just the mirror by which we're able to consider ourselves and our reflection and what needs attention in our spiritual appearance, but your word is also the spirit and life that gives energy and gives power and enablement to us as it is used by your Holy Spirit within us who, who works it in our hearts and lives to bring about the transformation that we cannot do in and of ourselves. We thank you for this today, Lord, and we pray that you would so work in our hearts and lives that, Lord, we would not only embrace your word but embody it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The reality is that there isn't a beatitude that's more welcomed by anyone and everyone in a universal sense. People long for peace. Peace in their hearts, peace in their lives and relationships, peace in the community, peace in the world. We stand in the wake of conflict, senseless, needless, wicked, demonic conflict being outplayed on our streets where young people are dying for no cause whatsoever and we long for peace. And yet we recognize that, as has been said so many times, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. People want to point the finger at all different factors that would be blamed for the spate of knife crime that we see going on. And yet, hasn't this theme of conflict been consistent throughout human history? Sociologists have done a study and said in around the 4,000 years of recorded human history, there's been 292 of peace out of 4,000. And so conflict has been a consistent and recurrent theme. In fact, we understand that it's not just been recurrent, but it's been intensifying. In 1969, at the Inter International Congress of the Red Cross, um, after sociological studies were done, they identified the 20th century as being the most bloody, the most violent, the century filled with the most conflict compared to all of the other centuries prior to it. 
That's the 20th century. And so this theme of conflict is an ongoing one. One that has intensified. And yet Jesus said, in the last days, men will be crying peace, peace when there is no peace. Where will we find peace? Who will be the ones to make peace? Billy Graham, the late great Billy Graham, um, went to be with the Lord. He received his graduation in February of this year. And he's quoted as having said this as it relates to the issue of peace and conflict. If an alien were to come from Mars, Mars and ask, what is mankind's primary industry? The answer would have to be war. Peace is something that is much sought after and seldom found. And yet Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, what kind of peace is Jesus talking about here? Is he talking about world peace? Is he talking about marital peace? Sibling peace? And what does that peace look like? What, would we know it even if we saw it? Well, it's important that we understand that the term peace that's used, it's shalom in the Hebrew, Irene in the Greek. It communicates more than just peace as in no trouble. It's not merely the absence of conflict, but also the enjoyment of all that is good. It's a sense of undisturbed wholeness. So it's not that, well, uh, things are calm, but it's the calm before the storm, and we're filled with anxiety and tension. We're glad that things are calm, but we're not enjoying all the good that we could be. That's not the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about a complete, a robust, a full, an abundant peace that goes beyond just calmness. And when we think about it in those terms, you're probably thinking to yourself, that peace is even harder to come by. And it we ought to feel like that because it's a spiritual peace that's being spoken of, not merely a human or earthly peace. For so many of us, this would be the picture of peace. Let's just go to that happy place. <laughs> that place you go to... Uh, Half past three on a Wednesday afternoon when the week's feeling long and you're at work doing your nine to five. And you're just feeling like this is tedious. And you just want to just sit down for a moment and go to that happy place of peace. And this may be the kind of place that you'd, that white sand, crystal clear seas, perfect climate. Butler bringing you drinks and 
of the healthiest kind, obviously, and fruit. And yet, there's, a, there's a, an even greater sense of peace that we're able to look to. And so you might look at this and say, hmm, this cascading waterfall, torrents of water that is flooding down this jagged cliff face, how does this represent peace? And that question was asked of the, the artist who put out a challenge. He put out a challenge to the nations and he said, I, I want somebody to picture peace. Paint a picture of peace. And there were those who created images maybe much like the first. Crystal clear waters, sun glinting off the still waters and fresh vegetation and lush. And as they uncovered the pictures of such nature, the artist wasn't satisfied. He walks up to the last picture and he pulls off the cover and he sees an image like this. A jagged cliff face with tor torrents of water cascading off it. And then he looked closely at the image. And he saw a bird, which you will barely be able to see, but it's in the middle of the picture and it's the lighter blob. A bird nested on a bough right there in that place and that bird was sitting on the eggs of its young with its eyes closed wings furled waiting for them to hatch you see this is the kind of peace that Jesus offers it's a peace that is not despite the storm but undisturbed in the midst of it that's real peace that's the kind of peace that we need right because the reality is that we're not going to get anything different until we get to glory. And so if we're going to see peace now, it's got to be a peace that's able to be robust enough and strong enough and real enough to withstand the storms of life. A quote from a source unknown says, Peace that Jesus gives is not the absence of trouble, but is rather the confidence that he is there with you always. Often we're looking and praying for peace in our lives, and in our minds that means, Lord, make all the trouble go away. And yet, the Lord says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We're still going through that valley in fear of our lives and yet not having to fear. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And that's not to say that the Lord doesn't want to 
offer us. The Lord doesn't want to provide for us still waters, placid lakes, and beautiful greenery. The psalmist acknowledges that in the prior verses. The Lord being our shepherd makes us to lie down in green pastures. He, he leads us beside still waters and he restores our souls. And so there is a sense of those seasons of stillness and lushness as we are led in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yet we still have to go through the valley of the shadow of death, right? It's part of the journey that we walk in this life. As much as it's unwelcomed and unwanted. <clears throat> now we're called to be peacemakers. And how can we make peace unless we have the masterpiece? How can we give what we don't have? How can we make what we don't know? Do you have the masterpiece? There is one piece that surpasses and dictates all other peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God for our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is where true peace comes from. When we first make peace with God. When we first made peace with God, then all other peace is realistic, achievable. Something we're able to aim for. We're able to strive for. But until we've made peace with God, we won't know peace at all. That is the masterpiece, the peace of the master. Job said this as it relates to arriving at that peace with God. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby, good will come to you. That phrase, agree with God, is basically what the word in the New Testament, confess, actually means. So the word confess in the New Testament basically means to agree with God. So in 1 John 1 verse 9, a memory verse that many of us will know. If we... Come on, man, don't let me down now. I just bigged you up. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins... God is faithful to forgive us our sins and, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen. If you don't know the verse, definitely get to know that. It's a life savior. If we confess, and that sense, confess means to agree with God. Now, only a fool disagrees with God. We've seen some try. The fool, Psalm says, 
has said in his heart, there is no God. I mean, that's the height of disagreeing with God, right? To say that there is no God. And yet God says you're a fool. Makes sense. Before we were, God was. And after we, God still is and will ever be. We see the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10. Lord gives him a vision. Unclean animals in Jewish terms. Shellfish, hooved animals and so on. Peter's like, no Lord, I won't eat them. I'm a vegan. Not really. <laughs> Shots fired. <Duh. laughs> I'm not even hating because I'm almost there myself. <laughs> but the Lord says to Peter, Peter, kill and eat. And he's like, no, Lord, I won't do it. Peter's disagreeing with God. Even in an attempt to be more holy than God is. Sometimes we can find ourselves in that place, you know. God tells us to go somewhere. We're like, no, Lord, I'm not meant to be there. And yet the Lord's told us to go. We can't be more holy than Jesus. We can't be more godly than God himself. And if God says something is all right, it's understandable, like to give Peter credit, it's understandable. He was, he was a, a Jew through and through. That's all he knew. And so when God said this to him, it was countercultural. It was left field. It was completely unexpected. Maybe it took him a moment to process. But God was saying, don't you call common what I have cleansed. And this was representative of the ungodly Gentiles having a welcome and, an, and to be embraced in the gospel. That was the meaning of it. And so Peter had to change his view to agree with God. And we see that actually he struggled with that because there was a point in Galatians 2 where the apostle Paul had to step to Peter and rebuke him to his face for his two-facedness. He had to rebuke him to his off-key face. Because Peter was sitting there with the Gentiles, having received this vision, and he was eating with them the food that they eat. People say, oh, a bacon sandwich? We don't know what he was eating, but he was eating Gentile food. But when the Jews came from, from Jerusalem, he, he dressed back and carried on as if he wasn't participating, as if he wasn't involved. Good to see you guys. It's good to have a chat. Wiping his hands real quick. And Paul had to step to him and say, look, how can you be so two-faced? That's not of the gospel. The issue wasn't so much the fact that Peter was eating and then didn't want to eat. But he was misrepresenting the gospel. And what it means to agree with God is to embrace the gospel wholeheartedly. That's the only place that we find peace. When we recognize that God is always right and we are not. And we can agree with that. And we can submit to that. 
even when we feel that we are more right than right itself. Being ready to say, Lord, you are God in heaven and I am here on earth and I will let my words be few. Even those words in my heart that are in turmoil, I'm going to let them be few and I'm just going to keep my focus on you and I'm going to agree with you. That is a place of peace. That is how we come to receive peace with God. That's how we receive the peace of the master. And in this, recognizing that God is right and we're not, and we need to be changed, transformed by him, and that he has done that through Jesus Christ, the only way to be rescued from our wrongness, from our sinfulness. And not just at that point of conversion when the Lord opened our eyes and our hearts were melted and we said, yes, Lord, forgive me, make me yours. And we, we made that transition and we turned around 180 degrees. And instead of walking away from God, we started to walk towards him in his direction, on his narrow road. But we're constantly challenged and we're constantly charged to remain in agreement with God. Because there are so many times when life will tempt us and test us to disagree with God and do our own thing and see it our own way. But we have to remain in agreement with God. Because Jesus is the only way. It doesn't matter what situation we're facing. Jesus is the only way. And in receiving Christ, his spirit takes residence within our hearts and brings forth fruit. A fruit of <clears throat> many aspects. And fundamental to that fruit is peace. It's a work of God's spirit who dwells in those who are his. And it is that peace that goes beyond understanding. And so, we recognize that God is the one who grants peace through Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, the writer reflects on an Old Testament visitation of Jesus. And Jesus is eternally existing. He always was, even before being born of a virgin. And there were certain times in Old Testament history when Jesus made appearances. Theologians call them theophanies or Christophanies, appearances or revelations of God in Christ. And so we see in Genesis 14, Abraham meet with a, a strange priest who just comes from nowhere and disappears to the same place 
just as quickly as he came. And his name was Melchizedek. And in Hebrews, the writer begins to break down this individual's identity. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, hmm, Salem, Salem is just another way of saying shalom, which is peace. Jesus, the king of shalom, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, he appointed a, a tenth part of everything. Sorry, and to him, Abraham appoint, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Now, as I share these verses, it's not because I want to say that you will find peace with God by giving a tenth, just like Abraham. Now, if I was unfaithful, I, I would try and use the text like that, as some do and have done. But that's not the point of the text. It's revealing the identity of this strange character. Now, as a side note, Abraham chose to give the tenth. It wasn't required of him. And it's the only time we see Abraham give a tenth. Just for the record. So when people want to say, oh, well, it's true. We're not under the law as Christians. We're under grace. And so... Yes, you're right. You don't have to give a tenth by law, but you still have to give a tenth. Why? Because Abraham gave a tenth. And so you are now bound. Abraham was before the law, and we are now in such a season, such a dispensation. And like Abraham, you must give a tenth. That's not a righteous use of the text. And that is not the way to encourage someone to give a tenth. Um, and that's not what we see supported in the New Testament. Although we do see the New Testament stress on numerous occasions that as believers we are to give to the work of the ministry. We see this in Galatians 6, which puts it very simply in modern terms. You get what you pay for. You reap what you sow paraphrased, same thing. And so if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow sparingly into spiritual things, you will reap sparingly at a spiritual harvest. It'll be shallow. And so there is a necessity for us to be faithful in our giving to the work of the Lord as he leads us and gives us the resource to do so. But that's not the point here. Back on track. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. So where do we find peace? Well, we must meet with the King of Peace, who is first the King of Righteousness. His name, Melchizedek, meant King of Righteousness, being the King of Salem, Shalom. This is where we find true peace. When we come and receive righteousness... From Jesus Christ. 
Having done that, we are called to be peacemakers. And why is it that we struggle to be peacemakers? So we find ourselves in a situation where we've been offended, where we've been hurt, where we've been violated, and we are now faced with a choice. Are we going to seek vengeance or peace? Are we going to try and get our pound of flesh? Or are we going to pursue peace? As the scripture says, seek peace and pursue it. Well, often we don't. And here are a few reasons, a few pertinent ones. Often, we're wanting to hold the offense at the expense of peace. We're not prepared to let go of the offense. We've been offended. Someone we know and love has been offended. And we're not prepared to let it go. And that doesn't mean that it's necessarily easy. But when we recognize the means by which we've received peace is that Christ, not, he didn't just sweep our offense under the carpet, but actually he received the vengeance, the retribution due to us in order that we might be free of the offense that we have, uh, the offenses we have committed against God. then we're challenged. Just like the servant in Matthew 18. He owed the king a great debt. A debt that was worth millions of pounds in today's terms. A debt that he could not repay. And he went before the king and he pleaded. And the king said, you know what, it's all right. Don't watch that. Go on. And as that servant left, he went and found one of his peers who owed him a few hundred pounds in comparison. And Jesus said that he gripped his peer and choked him for the money. Give me the money that you owe to me. And when the king heard of this, he was incensed. He was outraged. This, this guy that I let off millions is choking it. This, this other brother to death for a few hundred. Bind him hand and foot. Take him and cast him into jail. You see, if we don't forgive, how can we say that we've been forgiven? If we know what forgiveness tastes like, then we are bound to show forgiveness to others. Now, let me just clarify something. When we're letting go of an offense and we're saying, Lord, vengeance is yours, it's not mine, we are not saying that it's okay, it's all right. We're not saying that the person doesn't have to be punished. But what we are saying is, I am not going to allow that person to rob me of the peace in my heart. They say that walking in unforgiveness is like 
allowing someone to live rent-free inside your head. You see, forgiveness is as much for us as it is for the person, if not more so. And so, are we going to hold the offense at the expense of peace? Peace that we are told to pursue? Or maybe we value being right more than we value the peace that we're to pursue. I have to get the last word in the argument. I have to be right. And I will keep this contention going until my right is acknowledged. That is such a hindrance to us experiencing true peace. Let's exalt the Lord. He's right. Always. And he's big enough and strong enough to prove himself to be right without us having to be in conflict with someone in order to try and achieve that. Or maybe we're people pleasers. And we tell people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And so someone comes to us with an offense. And rather than encourage them to seek a peaceable resolution. You know, they say misery loves company, right? And we just jump on the bandwagon. Oh, that's terrible, you know. I never heard of such a thing. How could they say that? If that was me, you know, oh my gosh. And we've got all kinds of unhelpful and unnecessary responses. Because we want, we want to join in and share that common enemy so that our bond can be strengthened. We can be more united. Rather than telling the person what they need to hear. Now, it's really terrible, you know, but maybe there's some kind of peaceful resolution that can be, oh, I, you know what, let's just pray and pray that the Lord will bring peace in the situation. Too often, we like to pour fuel on the fire and because it's clear fuel, we think it's water. When we're just enraging the flames, we do so with side comments, sharing gossip, slandering. A, we're so quick to hear one side of the story and drag someone's name through the dirt, ready to bury them. Hearing one side of the story. Character assassination. Rather than hold our peace, literally. Rather than, you know what? Saying to the person, I, I realize that you're telling me this, but there's, there's really nothing that I can do to help change or influence this situation apart from pray. I don't think you really ought to tell me anything more, you know. That's how we avoid getting into gossip situations where we're inflaming situations rather than helping to bring peace. I'm, I'm really sad to hear that. Look, you know what? Um, maybe you need to go and find someone 
who, you, but furthermore, you need to go and speak to the person. That's what the Bible says. You got something with someone, go and speak to them. And if that's difficult, the Bible says, take someone and go. But work it out, and I'll keep it in prayer. Not eliciting every little DL, every crumb, every morsel, like it says in Proverbs, of gossip. And so these are things that we have to deal with if we're going to be true peacemakers. Whether that's peace in our own situations or peace in other situations where we're trying to mediate. We can't be a peacemaker taking sides. It doesn't work. But one thing I want to highlight... This isn't just something that's good to do. This isn't just something that, you know, oh well, maybe I could be more of a peacemaker. If we take that attitude, we're playing ourselves. We are missing out on the blessing that Jesus has commanded to those who are peacemakers. This, along with all of the other Beatitudes, carries a blessing as that which is commanded to the person who demonstrates these qualities. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do you want to be blessed? I mean, we all want to be blessed, right? Come on. And that's not a bad thing. And that's not a wrong thing. That's the way God made us. You want to be blessed. You want to be blessed, be a peacemaker. There's a blessing waiting for you. And so often, we allow Satan to rob us, snatch it out of our grasp. It's not easy. It's not easy when you're in a disintegrated relationship and you have a child and the spouse is trying to cause all kinds of contention over access And you've got to try and be peaceable in that situation. It's not easy when you've been estranged from seeing your child. And you feel like balling up your fists, pounding the table and making up noise. And yet you're called to be a peacemaker. It's not easy when you see that person you love, violated and, and absolutely ridiculed. And you're called to be a peacemaker. No one's saying this is easy, but that's why it's a work of God. That's why it's spiritual. It's not just of our human ingenuity. But not only are peacemakers blessed, not only is there a blessing for peacemakers, Peacemakers are recognized. Peacemakers are recognized. People recognize it when they see it. I could say to you, just take a a, a moment to scroll through your mental phone book and just think about that person who, you know, in a given situation, their response is that they're likely to be really peaceable, and reasonable and encouraging peace. We've all got someone like that in our lives. 
there's that one person we know, no matter what we bring to them, they're not going to join in the chorus of the verbal slaughter. But they're going to be like, oh, you know, that's terrible. Let's keep that in prayer. They're going to be that person who's always going to offer you some kind of godly sound counsel that's going to mop your brow, cool your temper, and, and speak sense. Peacemakers are recognized. And it is who we're to be recognized as. Peacemakers glorify God. You see, when people see peacemakers, true peacemakers, genuine peacemakers, they recognize that they're not normal people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called what? Sons of God, like father, like son. You're one of God's children. Because normally, they'll start, everyone starts beating their chest with me. And yet, you don't behave like that. I never see you think like that. What a, what a blessing it would be for that to be our testimony. What a blessing that would be. That God would be so greatly glorified that he is evidenced, that he is revealed through our commitment to being a peacemaker. And so, let me focus on three, maybe four ways in which we ought to pursue peace. Firstly, pray. In Psalm 122, verse 6, it says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. And so we see peace and security being used in a parallel sense. Security is a form of peace, and it's something that we can pray for. We can pray for for ourselves, we can pray for for our communities, and we need to be praying. You know, with all that's going on, there's been so many calls to action, and yet we cannot neglect prayer as the first and primary thing. Our senior pastor who's gone to be with the Lord Chuck Smith, he used to have this saying, until you've prayed, you can't do nothing. Once you've prayed, you can do anything. And so there is that necessity for us to, to pray without ceasing. We also need to persevere. Isaiah 26 verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on or fixed on you. Why? Because he trusts you. You know, as I heard Cash praying earlier, and just the fact that, you know what, even in the most dire situations, we can, we can have hope because of God. I, my heart was touched, and it was, it was challenged. Where am I looking for hope in the face of this murder? Where am I looking for hope? I want to see the individuals caught who committed the crime. And I want to see them punished. 
is that going to is that really the source of hope that's going to bring about the change that we desire to see? You've got guys going to jail like it's a holiday camp. If I don't bust case, I ride it out. And they're in there, I mean, living life. And rehabilitation and transformation is far from the top of the agenda. So me wanting to see the, the, the perpetrator's caught, that's not going to provide me ultimate hope. No, I need to keep my mind fixed on Jesus and trust him, continue to trust him and persevere in trusting him regardless of what it looks like, regardless of how disturbing the circumstances. In doing so, Peace will be maintained. And notice it says, you keep him in perfect peace. It's not even something that we have to strive for. I mean, what a contradiction in terms, right? Trying to strive for peace. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Keep our mind fixed on Jesus. Continue trusting him. Continue persevering serving him. Continue pleasing him. And God gives such peace that even our enemies will be at peace with us. Also, let us proclaim... How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We've got to pray, we've got to persevere, but we've got to proclaim the peace of God. The fact that God reigns. He is the sovereign ruler and he does all things well. And he will work everything out. And we can have confidence in that. And we can have peace in that. There's security there. In the salvation of the Lord. I heard somebody once say, I can't remember who it was. As individuals, we are committed to what we confess. We are committed to what we confess. You know what, one day, you know. I'm just going to start a business and I'm going to make, I'm just going to make bank. I'm going to do, I'm, I'm, I'm. and you, you, you start saying that enough people will take you seriously. And then these people are asking you, so what happened to that business that you was going to? And as we confess the peace of God in Christ Jesus, it does something within us, galvanizing our own commitment to that peace. We need to preach to ourselves. And every time we proclaim to someone else, every time we preach to someone else, we are preaching to ourselves. One of the fundamental principles of pulpit ministry, whenever we stand up to preach, we are not exempt from that which we preach. We're preaching to ourselves. We are all under God's word.
Here's a promise. Look at what God done, God done in the time of Solomon. David commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon, his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you peace on every side? I mean, you think about David and you think about all of the, the scuffles and tuffles and all of the things that he had to go through. And his son comes and the Lord has given him peace on every side. For he, has, for he, God, has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand. And the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. This is the promise of God. God is faithful. He will do it. And so let us continue to pray and to persevere and to proclaim as we trust the promise. Seek peace and pursue it. I'm going to ask the team to come back and um, ask if you stand with me. Blessed are the peacemakers. May we be those who make peace one step at a time, one piece at a time. You know, as we work with these young people in the school here, and, I, you know, go around and tell people as a church we've set up this school and we're working with these pupils at risk of exclusion. And people say, how many students have you got? Because they hear school and work and students and teaching. And they're thinking, 100? I mean, how big is your school? And I, and I feel absolutely no way whatsoever to say, you know what, we're working with 12 pupils, you know. And we're giving them focused, personalized attention and support. Because it's one, that piece comes one person at a time. And if that's going to be a manageable way for us to work with these young people and we might not see every single one of the 12 turned around. But if it's one or two or three, may the peace of God reign in their lives one at a time, piece by piece. And as we face the challenges in our own lives, and as we face the, the hindrances and barriers to peace in our own lives, I encourage you, Take it one piece at a time. Put it before the Lord. Pray. Trust Him as you persevere. And proclaim His goodness. Father, we thank You because You are good. And Lord, Your goodness just consumes and so outweighs our bad. And Lord, you know, I recognize that I, there are so many times and so many ways, even recently, where I just, I don't want to agree with you. And yet, Lord, you've called us to peace. Not just to have peace, but to make peace. And Lord, 
I thank you, Lord, that you help us to persevere and to preserve the peace that you've given us in order that we might have something to offer, that we might have something to minister to others. Help us, Lord. I know there are so many of us going through different challenges where our, our peace is being tested. And there's ample opportunity for us to try and forsake our peace, to forsake your peace. Help us, Lord, I pray. Even to want to proclaim peace to perpetrators. As we heard a brother Icy saying earlier, Lord, that's a hard thought right now. But I thank you because this is what you have done for me. This is what you have done for us. You have declared peace, Lord, where we deserve no peace. Our sins have ascended unto heaven and have been a stench in your nostrils, Lord. And yet, Lord, you, you looked at your son and you declared peace. You looked at his sacrifice and you declared peace. Help us, Lord, to be likewise sacrificial in our willingness to, to declare your peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.